Chicago health officials may soon again recommend masks indoors as COVID case numbers continue to rise. For anyone who's traveling to a county that is medium risk, we really recommend considering wearing a mask in indoor places. And if it's high risk, definitely you've got to wear a mask in the indoor places. And if you're not vaccinated, you really shouldn't go to an Orange County. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, about local housing news, including how prices of new homes continue to soar as price increases since early 2021 are the biggest in at least 15 years. A response to both demand and the rising costs of supplies and labor. I'm Amy Guth and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, May 5th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm your host, Amy Guth, and I'm joined, as I am every week, by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Morning, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thank you. What's what's new and exciting in the real estate world? Lots of things, it looks like. Several stories we've done and others have done have been about the idea that interest rates are skyrocketing or are rising fast but they don't seem to be pulling down the housing market. I was talking to a real estate agent who said, man, I thought March and April were gonna be super slow and they're just not. It seems to be, the real estate market seems to be defying gravity. <laughs> defying gravity, I like that. So one of uh, the stories that you reported recently talks a bit about how prices of new homes keep going up, even as demand is, as you, as it says in the headline, off the rails. Yeah, this is, so we get quarterly reports from Tracy Cross, a home building industry consultant. And for the first quarter of 2022, their report shows that uh, the average price of, well, they, they did sort of a same store sales comparison so that uh, homes in subdivisions that were selling in early 2021 and in early 2022 were compared. And they found that the average Average price of a home in those subdivisions went up about $55,000 in the course of a year. That's more than 10%. Uh, it, and of course, the homes, the prices of existing homes also went up in the double digits in that time. But this is, you know, the for 10 years, the reports from Tracy Cross, this consultancy in Schaumburg, were oh man, lowest number yet. Oh, low volume, low volume, trough, trough, trough. And now it's been up and up and up. Uh, the first quarter of 2022 showed a decline in sales from the first quarter of 2021, but it was still, despite that, the second strongest quarter since the beginning of, of 2008. And that's any quarter winter, spring, summer, fall. Uh, the only one it was slower than is a year earlier. And the basic situation is they just don't have enough inventory. Prices also went up because of shortages of supply, uh, high the, the rising cost of labor. But for the most part, demand just kept 
pushing their prices higher and higher. I spoke to the developer of one, well, the developer of several subdivisions, but I spoke to him about one in particular, and he said he had raised prices about $100,000 in a single year. Uh, and he said that he just, that the market, he's the one who said that demand has been off the rails, that in his six subdivisions in the sort of Vernon Hills, Hawthorne Woods area, um, he's had demand like he's never seen before. Wow, that's really something. And then what about Chicago's second home market? That's also something you've reported on recently. That's really the one where I sort of felt like it was defying gravity. I went into this story, uh, it's, it's March, April, it's the beginning of the period when people generally start searching those drive-to second home markets, Galena, um, uh, Door County, Lake Geneva, Southwest Michigan and Northwest Indiana. And those places, we, you and I have talked several times, those places have had remarkable booms during the two years of the pandemic. Sales doubled, uh, home sales doubled in Galena uh, in, the, in the first year of the pandemic. And, the, you know, this was understandable. I can drive there. I no longer am tethered to my office downtown or in the northwest suburbs. So I can spend much more time, if not all my time, at this second home location. And it was real easy to buy because interest rates were so low for so long. So what's happening in the beginning of 2022? Many people are having to go back to the office at least part-time. That that complete cutoff from the office is gone. We're a little bit more tethered to offices. And interest rates began rising, really began rising sharply in March. So would that mean that these uh, drive-to second home markets would be harmed? And everybody I spoke to in every one of those markets said, nope, not yet. We're still seeing these houses come on the market and go right off. I looked at one in Three Oaks, Michigan, in Southwest Michigan, where they put it on the market at considerably more. It had been on the market prior to the pandemic boom. I'm not sure why it wasn't on the market during the pandemic boom. It came back, it never sold in those prior years, came back on at a considerably higher price and was off the market in just a few days. People are snatching them up because the other factor, I mentioned rising interest rates and the return to the office, but the other factor is like Chicago, like all of our suburbs, like really the real estate market nationwide, most of these places are um, super tight on inventory right now. And that's in large part because of the booms in sales of um, previous years. So you would expect that things would be getting, um, would, would start to cramp in some of those suburbs. But again, I spoke to real estate agents, real estate agents I could trust to be candid, who all said, yeah, we're just not seeing it yet. It has not slowed down. Demand is as it was for the past two years. We'll have to see how that sustains kind of through the summer to see if it, it stays that way could start to decline. One of the things that several of them told me is that one reason interest rates aren't having the big impact they might have had is that a lot of this purchasing is cash only, or as I should say is all cash, in part because uh, those markets have been so competitive that I need to be all cash to prevail in a bidding war, and in part because many people are flush with cash because of their um, stock market wealth and things like that. So that's one of the things that, that is sort of helping it defy gravity. Interest rates aren't as important uh, in these markets as they might have been. And like I said, I'm not the only one writing uh, wow, we thought this was going to come down. There's a big story in the Washington Post. I've seen it in several other places where the headline is basically, yeah, we thought things were going to start, start coming back down and they aren't yet. 
You would think it absolutely would have responded to interest rates and things like that. Still could. There's still time. Interest rates in March and April hadn't had gone up a lot relatively, but still hadn't gotten past sort of historical low levels. So it's possible if they continue to climb in the course of uh, 2022 that we then start to see them choking things off. But haven't seen it yet. As with so many things, we have to wait and see. All right. I've been very eager to talk with you about this story. So Redfin has settled a case with some fair housing groups. This is very interesting because it's kind of, it was the issue is sort of being equated with like a, a new form of redlining in the digital age. This is a lawsuit that we probably talked about when it was initiated in 2020. Several fair housing groups, including three in the Chicago area who were sort of the leaders with a national fair housing group, sued Redfin claiming Redfin has, um, uh, or I should say had until this settlement, had some um, requirements. They wouldn't, they wouldn't offer certain services to homes that were priced below a certain floor. And those services are essentially what brings you a discount. Um, you, and so they were not providing these below a certain price. And so what a lot of these fair housing groups found when they looked is that most of those homes were in primarily black and brown neighborhoods. So they said that what you're doing is you're withholding your discounts, you're withholding your best services from neighborhoods that may stand to benefit from them most, from discounts and other things because of um, sort of the, the general climate, the economic climate for people in lower income neighborhoods. So uh, at the time that they filed it in 2020, Redfin said, well, so the, the, the deal here is we don't charge commissions. We pay salaries to our agents. So if we go below a certain value, certain home value, that's not a moneymaker for us. That's a money loser. So that's why we have it set up this way. We don't have it set up for reasons of racial discrimination. The case essentially said, but the effect is discrimination. And so uh, last week, Redfin and these fair housing agencies, including, as I said, three major ones in the Chicago suburbs, uh, agreed, announced a settlement where Redfin will no longer have that requirement, that, that minimum floor. Uh, and they issued a statement. They sent me some statements as well as other reporters saying, you know, essentially, we get it. The intent was not to be discriminatory, but if it has a discriminatory effect, we'll remove it. So they are now not going to um, effectively withhold discounts from the lowest price houses in the markets, which tend to be houses in black and brown neighborhoods. I think it is a very interesting case. I do remember talking about it at the time that it was filed. And I think it is interesting because it is yet another way that we still see the impacts of redlining still existing. Absolutely. That's what some of the housing activists from the Chicago Chicago area organizations said uh, at the time that I, I wrote the first story. They said, you know, this is this is just another version, another link in a chain that goes back a long, long way. And what you're doing is you're helping to essentially perpetuate Chicago's lines of segregation. And I just want to say, um, so there were three suburban organizations here. I don't recall the exact number. I think it was 10 nationwide. One thing we can be sort of pleased with, uh, both from this story and I've written about some other settlements having to do with discriminatory practices, we have some really strong, really vital fair housing agencies 
uh, in the Chicago area that are really working to change a lot of this. And I think that's something we can be pleased about. Yeah, certainly. Certainly worth noting that for sure. Well, we've got some houses to talk about now. Let's go to Kenwood and talk about how the Obamas might be getting new neighbors. I feel very strongly that they are uh, going to get new neighbors. But as you know, as a reporter, I can only report what we can document. We, I was 97% there. We know, I know that the lot was sold. Um, many people may be aware of this lot. It is immediately south of the Obama's house. It's the next door neighbor, the southern next door neighbor of the Obama's house on Greenwood. The lot was, until 17 years ago, part of the lot that the Obamas own. And as people might remember, so the house was on on like a 15,000 square foot lot. And then it was offered in 2005, 17 years ago, it was offered as two separate parcels, the one with the house on it and this separate house. And what became very controversial is uh, Barack and Michelle Obama bought the one with the house on it. And the Tribune later learned that on the very same day, Tony Rezko and his wife bought the lot next door. Tony Rezko, uh, at the time they purchased it, was a political fundraiser, political influencer, but went to jail for uh, influence peddling related to Rod Blagojevich and others. So this became it became kind of an important question: How does it happen that one of your that one of the people who had fundraised for Barack Obama, uh, who at the time he bought this house was a senator? Um, how is how does it happen that one of your fundraisers buys the lot next door on the very same day that you buy the house? And so uh, conservative media sort of felt that this was proof that uh, Barack Obama was more in the pocket of uh, Tony Rezko than he was letting on. Obama went to great pains to explain that he hadn't suggested this, that he didn't know why Resco had done this. Um, and it is important to say that when Resco was found was on trial and found guilty, Barack Obama was never implicated. However, there was it just looked funny that my fundraiser buys the lot the lot next door the same day I buy this lot. So at that time, uh, Obama, to, in, that was 2005. In 2006, Obama told the Tribune that he thought the Rezcos had bought it to build a house on that lot. And that clearly is why the lot was split off, is that you could build, uh, it turns out, about an 8,000 square foot house on the lot. Um, the Rezcos never did. They sold it. And we should also say, just to be technically accurate, that uh, this lot we're talking about now is actually smaller than what the Rezcos bought because they sold one-sixth of it to the Obamas, and there's a fence between the two properties. So the the Rezcos sold it. They sold it to another group who uh, were trying, uh, another group of owners who were trying to build an eight, who planned to build an 8,000 square foot house on the site. I actually reported in 2012 that they put, put it on the market, they put the lot on the market, and in the sales materials, it said specifically, they were going to build a house and now they're not going to. So the property, the lot has been on and off the market again and again since about 2012, and it sold, it turns out, quietly at the end of 2021, December 2021, a couple bought it for 699000 It had been on the market for as much as $1.2 million back in 2012. They bought it for $699,000. Um, I, I tried very hard to reach them. I tried to reach the sellers couldn't find anybody uh, or couldn't get anybody to talk to me. So I don't know that they're building on it. However, once again, it can handle an 8,000 square foot 
house? Why do you buy a lot if you're not going to build on it? Are you just investors? Um, I, I feel very strongly that within the next few weeks, next few months, I'll be reporting that permits have been issued or architectural plans have been submitted or something like that. But at the moment, all we can say is with certainty is the lot has sold for $699,000. $699, this is a lot that has essentially been in play for 17 years since the sellers of the big house divided the house from the side yard. And again, the Obamas bought the house and the lot it was on. Uh, it's been in play for about for 17 years. It sold in uh, December 2021 for $699,000. And I expect this story will be continued down the line. That's a very storied piece of land there. It is, you know, and when I read back over the things, I wrote about the lot when it was for sale, and but I also read back over the Tribune's investigation because you remember Tony Resco was was uh, he was involved in all kinds of things that were not good. And the Tribune is the one that pulled the points together. The public records are not real clear on the Obama's purchase of the House. I remember reporting that at one point. Um, Barack Obama, junior senator, best-selling author, and his wife, executive at the University of Chicago Hospitals, have bought a house. But the records were not entirely clear. And I think that has to do with the division of the property into two lots. But then when the Resco thing was discovered by the Tribune, this became a very well, a very infamous lot. And now 17 years later, I don't know how many people remember it. Of course, I did just because these are the kinds of things I cover. But 17 years later, it may finally be moving forward, moving out of that infamy. Right. Well, we'll have to wait and see on that one, too. We had previously talked about the home of Muddy Waters. And what is the latest with that? Big step forward. On Monday, Mayor Lightfoot announced a round of community development grants that, as she said at the event, um, is really designed to sort of to scatter a recovery funding and city bond money throughout the city to help lift neighborhoods in their recovery from the pandemic era. So these were there were places in Humboldt Park and Gage Park and everywhere else. And the Muddy Waters House, which had previously received a different kind of a grant, got one of these community development grants. It's in North Kenwood. It's on Lake Park Avenue. As you know, I've been covering this for a couple of years. Muddy Waters' great-granddaughter, Chandra Cooper, is turning the house into what's called the Mojo Museum. Muddy Waters bought the house in the 1950s. It is still in the family's hands. He moved out in the 70s. He moved to Westmont with his kids, I believe for the schools. Um, but the house has been in the family's hands all this time. It's been in terrible shape in recent years. It's been vacant for at least 10 years. But Chandra Cooper in recent years has gotten, on Monday, she got $116,000 for interior renovations. Uh, just last month or in March, she got $250,000 for exterior renovations, also from the city. She also had $50,000 from the National Trust to sort of get things started and stabilize the property. I spoke to her contractor, which I had not done before, and he said, "This is there's quite a job that has to be done. This building is from the 18, 1880s, and uh, he has had to build a new steel superstructure in the basement to support the building. They've gutted the, they had before they got the grant, gutted the interior because again, it's been empty for a long time. Uh, so they had completely gutted it and these funds will be used essentially to rebuild uh, the interior to approximately the era of muddy waters, not necessarily to the 1880s. And um, with this 
$366,000 that has come in in the last month and a half. Chandra Cooper told me that the project is now out of the woods. It's a very expensive renovation, and she thinks that because of the work they can now afford to do, the museum can open in some form by the end of 2022. She hadn't been able to say that before. And now she can say that she thinks it may not be a fully operating museum, but it may be open for tours, maybe sort of a small version of the museum that she intends by the end of this year and then move forward. So that that's actually a big step. Yeah, that's a huge step. Did, did she give you a sense of what she thinks maybe the, the full price tag will be to fully restore it and fully open the museum? It looks as if this funding will complete full restoration. Then you need to fund a museum. You need to get operations money and things like that. And that's what she's working on now. And as we've discussed with a lot of these houses, the Emmett Till and, and others, um, success breeds success, right? Now that she can say we have this money to restore this thing. It's not going to remain the eyesore it's been. Um, she thinks that one, uh, she's in um, negotiations with Alderman Sophia King about getting that vacant lot, which is city owned, and other funders may come along. When they see you're doing a, essentially a $400,000 restoration of this property, they start to think, oh, this is a very viable project. I want to come in and help fund museum operations or educational programs or whatever it is. Yeah, I'm sure once people see it's happening, okay, this is open, the doors are open, this is happening, then it'll be, it's much easier for supporters to support. Yeah, it's not a pie in the sky, gee, it sure would be great if we could bring this place back. It's we are in the process of bringing this place back and here's the money we have to, to make that happen. Plus, I love the name Mojo Museum. That's just fun. I did. I did too. Yeah. Yeah. And as she said, the day that the grant was given out, this really sort of gets their mojo working. Yeah. Right. I love that. Another song for our playlist. We can't get through an episode without talking about a song for sure. Yeah. We skipped over Defying Gravity from um, Missed Opportunity. All right. Let's go to Oak Park. Another bit of a storied house. But but the headline on this story that you reported is a house that was duplicated around the country. Tell me about this. Chicago was, of course, uh, a center of residential, well, a center of architecture, including residential architecture, in the early part of the 20th century, and a lot of our noted architects would get published. This one uh, actually has three architects attached. It was begun, it was designed overall by Lawrence Buck, who was a very popular, very uh, prominent architect, but he was so busy that he recruited two young men, Thomas Talmadge and Vernon Watson, to finish the design for him, to execute all the details. Talmadge and Watson became two of the, really a very prominent set of Prairie School architects. But in 1905, they finished this on Iowa Street in Oak Park. It has, you can see, lots of beautiful wood. It has this really wonderful ingle nook, which is sort of the centerpiece of an arts and crafts house. It's been uh, the, the old mural above the fireplace has been sort of recreated. It was lost at some point, but a really nice house, really great look from the outside. And so it's finished in 1905. And then it is featured in both House Beautiful and Ladies Home Journal in the next few years. And, and both of them, I quoted one of them in the story, basically saying, yeah, this is it's a really comfortable house. It's a place to be lived in, not just occupied, because it feels so warm. And as a result, uh, an architectural historian reported, it was built in at least these places, New York, Kansas, Iowa, two places in Illinois, and North Dakota. 
probably others as well. But um, we know at least that those exist. And uh, that report actually has photos of them and they look like this house. So you could, you know, you could go on a tour from your house out to um, Rockford and North Dakota and Kansas and Iowa and look at your house again. It's and you can see why it would be. I mean, this was sort of how a model home got dispersed through the country is these magazines. Remember, Ladies Home Journal was about homes. Uh, and so you'd find the one you liked and build it. This one, you can see why, got built several places. I wonder how often that's happened when no one really knows about it. It's not documented or no one ever followed up with the original homeowner, et cetera. I'm sure there's cases of that happening many times. Oh, sure. Well, you know, there are pattern books. There are, there are house patterns that were published in the Chicago Tribune and everywhere else. And uh, once you bought the pattern, you didn't have to join any club or anything like that. So it may be true. I mean, one of the things we don't know is where else this house was duplicated. But there are a lot of other designs. Uh, I, of course, am most familiar with Chicago architects' designs. There are a lot of other Chicago architects' designs that have been uh, repeated throughout the country. In this case, we happen to know exactly where. The house on Iowa is for sale for $925,000. All right, let's go to another house. This one's in Evanston. And the, you describe this one as a condo that lives like a house. This is a Georgian-style residence. Tell me about this. So this was built in 1916 on a beautiful sort of ridgetop location in Evanston. The owners were, the, the man was George Dryden, who was a rubber manufacturer in Chicago. The woman, his wife, Ellen Dryden, was a niece of George Eastman, who founded Eastman Kodak in Rochester. And all the articles say that she said, I want a Georgian like this gigantic Georgian that George Eastman had in Rochester. I linked to pictures of it in the story. And you can see this one's red brick. That one is, I think, limestone. But they're, they're similar houses. They're big Georgians with those giant pillars. So they built it in 1916. It was in their hands until 1959. She had already died. George Dryden died in 1959. He leaves it to Northwestern University. Northwestern sells it to the Evanston School District, which uses it from 1959 until 2007 as offices. 2007, it's converted to condos. So a lot of the interior was already banged up and gone because it had been offices for so many years. But a room like this, what you're seeing here, this was George Dryden's office. It had been kept intact for all that time that the building was offices. And so the woman who the, the woman who is now selling this condo, when she came in in 2007, had her pick of the, she was the first, so she had her pick of the four condos this mansion was turned into, and she took the one with this office in it, this walnut paneled office. And outside those windows, there's another, she got sort of some of the best features of this house. She got this, she enters the house through the port cachere, other people enter through sort of the main front doors and things like that, but she actually Actually has this sort of glass enclosed booth that you would have driven up to and walks into her condo and she also has I think we're gonna see it this beautiful brick terrace when you look at the front of the house it's got these giant concrete columns and the big pediment at the top and two brick um, there are two balusters that go off to the sides at the ground level one of those is her terrace so right outside her condo right outside that office we were looking at is this nice brick terrace she has where she can look out on Ridge Avenue, look out across this vast lawn to Ridge Avenue in Evanston. But then again, this was done in 2007. So she's got 
uh, kitchen, family room, all the kinds of things that you would have built if you were building new in 2007. But she has the old fireplaces. The one on the left there is original. This one in the primary bedroom is an original fireplace, she believes. So it's a new condo, but in an old house. And what she said is she had told her real estate agent 2007, I don't want to look at condos. And her real estate agent said, well, let me show you something. And this one is more like a house. The reason it's more like a house is that it's a piece of a giant house. This is that terrace I was talking about. Um, she also has, so it is, she has a total of five bedrooms. There are two here on the main floor of the house. She's, she's the north side of the main floor of the house. And then there are three in the basement, uh, one of which she was, her kids were using as sort of a homework hangout room. But you've got this terrace. I mean, it's, it's as if you live in this giant Georgian by yourself, but you don't have to deal with, you know, taking care of a 30 room house. She's I mean, imagine sitting out here. So you're facing you're facing east. I think you would probably catch a lake breeze because you're sitting up on a ridge. But you're looking out over this vast lawn that you're not having to mow. Uh, and you've got all this landscaping and look and up behind you is this very stately brick facade. It's it's kind of an interesting way to live. She's asking just under $1.5 million for it. She paid about $1.35 million for it um, in 2007. So she's, she's not asking that much more. It's really nice. And how many units are in the building altogether? Is it like a duplex? Four, two per side of the house, one on the lower level, one on the upper. I have written about before, and, I, and we may have talked about, one has the old ballroom, oh, interesting. which is really cool. It's this giant barrel vaulted ceiling with um, banding in it. It's it, in the ceiling. It's really cool. Um, so I think I don't know for sure what the other two have, but I think everybody got some of the original details. She got that office. She got George Dryden's office, which is spectacular. And she also got I mean, this is a pretty cool terrace to have. Right. A terrace surrounded by greenery. Nothing wrong with that. And plus, I always say offices with wood paneling. I think you're like 10 percent smarter if you're working in there just because they look so studious. <laughs> but it's interesting to like divide up a house I'm assuming because one has a ballroom and one has this paneled office that these condos aren't just all the same, right? That it, your unit is not going to be like your neighbors and that all these old details of the house are, are intact through them. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. And I think, and so people who know this site know that um, it's got, it had like two acres of grass around it or parking probably during the the um, school district years. And there have been some houses built. It's kind of like a hen and chicks. Here's the mother hen, the big Georgian house. And then the chicks around are, uh, they're sort of a prairie style house and a couple of others, one uh, toward the back, more sort of modern. So it's, um, not only do the condos differ, but the other people in your HOA, in your homeowners association, also have different styles of property. It's it's an interesting way to reuse the place. It's, I mean, it's kind of, it's fascinating to think in 1959, the school district said, yeah, we'll put our offices in this giant Georgian mansion. And it's right. nearly a half a century later that they say, ah, we, we probably ought to go somewhere else. I think it probably was a really interesting transition from residential mansion to school district. Oh, for sure. I mean, that would be so interesting to to work in a place like that that used to be such a grand residential, you know, building. 
it was interesting. One of the things she told me is, I guess, longtime Evanstonians know that this was the school district headquarters and stuff. And she said she still has people when they come to visit her, they say, oh, yeah, I had my teeth checked here at the school district dentist's office. How funny. Yeah. Another very storied house then. Yeah, I think so. All right. Well, what's coming up in the week ahead, Dennis? Well, uh, I'm still looking at what's being impacted by interest rates. Uh, inventory is very low, but I'm also working on a story that's looking at the impact of crime. Mm, okay. Sounds good. Well, we will talk about that next week. All right. Thanks so much, Dennis. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, Illinois advocacy groups across the spectrum of the abortion divide move quickly to ramp up fundraising and activism. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Crane's Chicago business is pleased to announce its all-new Power Breakfast event series, featuring conversations with Chicago's power players, influencers, and policymakers. Join us on Tuesday, May 24th for this year's first installment featuring Samir Mayakar, Deputy Mayor of Economic and Neighborhood Development. Political columnist Greg Hines will talk to Chicago's chief business liaison about downtown recovery, attracting more business to the city, future opportunities, and more. To secure your seat, visit chicagobusiness.com events. You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. As COVID-19 cases continue to increase in Chicago, city health officials expect to transition into a more severe community risk level in the next couple of weeks, a point at which health officials would again begin recommending masks for indoor settings. Um, and if we put that in context for Chicago here, if and when we move to a medium risk, you will be seeing um, really stronger recommendations around wearing masks indoors. You can continue to go to school and to work and ride the L and you don't need to avoid gatherings. Certainly if you are at higher risk for a severe, severe outcomes or live with someone who is, you may need to be more conservative. But really for everybody, we'll be asking you to put masks on um, where you're in indoor settings, but only at high risk would that be when we would be requiring it in a legal mandated kind of way. The Chicago Department of Public Health said COVID cases in Chicago are expected to exceed 200 per 100,000 people in the next week or two. And according to community risk categories defined by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Chicago would then be at a medium COVID risk level. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis noted that while cases continue to rise, CDPH data shows that severe outcomes, including hospitalizations and deaths, remain at or near all-time pandemic lows. Also noting that according to CDPH, low severe outcomes means Chicago is unlikely to move into the high-risk category, which requires both high case rates and severe outcomes. As Chicago approaches the medium level, CDPH is also increasing its wastewater and variant testing. Last week, suburban Cook County moved into the medium risk category as it began reporting 210 cases per 100,000 residents over a seven-day period. DuPage and Lake Counties are also considered in the medium risk category. And around the country, Washington, D.C. and New York also moved into the medium risk level in recent weeks. Crane's Danny Ecker reported that the Canadian developer planning to build almost 2,700 apartments on the southern tip of Goose Island has a deal to buy another big development site a block away, 
likely teeing up what could be more than 1,000 more residential units along the north branch of the Chicago River. Ecker reported, citing sources close to the agreement, that Ani Group is finalizing a deal to buy the seven-acre property at 700 West Chicago Avenue from a joint venture of Irving, Texas-based Nexstar and Chicago developer Riverside Investment and Development. Ecker said financial terms of the deal were not clear, but people familiar with Ani's plans say the Vancouver-based developer would likely transform the property at the northeast corner of Chicago and Halstead with a residential project. The site is immediately north of the land that could be the site of the city's first casino and sits just south of the site where Ani is poised to build a 2.7 million square foot development on Goose Island, calling it Halstead Point. Only three months after the exit of former Chief Marketing Officer Pat McLean, Walgreens has announced that Lynn Peters is joining the company as Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer. Peters was most recently Global CMO at Calvin Klein, a job she left in the fall. Prior to that year-long job, she worked at Starbucks as Vice President of Loyalty, Licensed Stores Products, and Marketing where she overlapped with Roz Brewer, Starbucks' former chief operating officer and group president. Brewer was named CEO of Walgreens last year. Along with Peter's appointment, Deerfield-based Walgreens also promoted Luke Rauch, formerly Brewer's chief of staff to senior vice president and chief merchandising officer, and also named Bala Visaltha, formerly vice president of e-commerce at Walmart U.S., as senior vice president and chief product officer, a newly created position. No matter how the U.S. Supreme Court rules on abortion access later this summer, participants on both sides of the issue tell Cranes that Illinois will see advocacy ramping up. The news that the court could be set to overturn the landmark Roe v. Wade decision had organizations discussing fundraising, advocacy, and expansion plans, as Illinois is set to become a destination for those from around the Midwest and beyond seeking abortion services. Illinois Planned Parenthood Chief Development Officer Tim Case said the organization's Resolve campaign, which officially launched about two years ago at the beginning of the pandemic, has raised about $31 million of its $40 million goal to expand capacity for reproductive services and to subsidize that care for those who can't afford it, he said. The campaign, he said, is all about being prepared for what he described as the surge of patients coming from out of state, saying, quote, it could be five times the number we're seeing now. Speaking for Planned Parenthood of Illinois Action, the group's separate political action committee arm, Case said the organization will, quote, definitely be ramping up there as well, saying they know anti-abortion advocates will be zeroing in. Laura Welch, president of Illinois Now, said that more money will be key to meet the demand of those from out of state who turn to Illinois for abortion. For the anti-abortion group Aid for Women, which said it provided services like ultrasounds, childcare, and housing for over 4,400 people in Illinois in 2021, Executive Director Susan Barrett told Cranes she believes an overturned row means the group will need to provide services to even more people. In a press conference, Illinois Right to Life Executive Director Amy Gerke said she believes anti-abortion groups are not far away from changing the minds of voters and lawmakers. To that end, she said her group has recently launched a program designed to change public perception of abortion issues in Illinois. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand.
Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening and I'll meet you right back here next time.